All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I thought I was done with vampire media played straight. I thought I was done with it. No, I have entered my Anne Rice era. I'm so, I love it. I'm so ready. I'm here. I'm living. I'm loving. I'm laughing. Um, this is where I am at. I'm Mary, my digital marker, and the first one thing that I've learned from doing this episode is that Missy supports queer killers. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end, you may agree. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Yes. That's what I've learned the most from this. Yes. Nothing else. Um, I was working on this outline until 1130 last night. Listen, there's a lot that there's a lot of media, first of all, can consume. There's fully 10 pages of cut quotes. Oh, my gosh. If well, you, it's been out for so long and it's such a rich text to like mine. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you subscribe to our Patreon at the $5 plus level, you can have access to our outlines and you can see all of the stuff that I cut, including like sections that I had written and then cut trying to make it fit yeah. into a normal like bisexuality. Well, I didn't write that part no. down. I had the thought, but I was a too tired and b like, this is a whole digression. You'd have to do even more research. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I can't, I can't do this right now. Um, I do want to give a content warning before we get started. This is one. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's about vampires, so you can expect some death and blood and so on, but it is also, um, I want to give a content warning for mentions of incest and abuse. We're not going to be graphic on either of those things, and abuse absolutely happens in this series. Incest does not happen, but there are mentions and gestures toward it. So I want to give that warning in advance. If that's troubling for you, please skip this episode. Um, so today we're talking about Interview with the Vampire, uh, which for our purposes includes the 1976 novel by Anne Rice, the 1994 film directed by Neil Jordan, and the 2022 TV series created by Roland Jones. Uh, Interview with the Vampire tells the story of Louis Dupont de Lac, a man living in New Orleans. In the book and movie, he is a slave owner, and in the TV series, he is a black queer man who runs brothels. Um, so Louis de Pont- Lac is transformed into a vampire by Lestat de Lioncourt. Uh, pardon my... I was just gonna say, that sounded really good. Well, <laughs> I guess you would know better. I know, f- <laughs> I, I studied French. So par- for, for French speakers, pardon my shitty accent. For people who do not speak French. You're welcome. That sounded pretty good, huh? (laughs) Uh, The story is told through a frame narrative in which Louise, some 200 years after being transformed, tells his life story to a young interviewer. Lestat and Louis have a tumultuous relationship. Uh, Lestat delights in his vampire form, while Louis is more contemplative and unwilling to kill humans for the most part. At one point, Louis feeds on Claudia, a six-year-old or a little older in the adaptations. Um, she's a six-year-old girl whose mother has died, and Lestat transforms her into a vampire to keep Louis from leaving him. The three live as a sort of family together, but as Claudia grows older, but her body stays the same, she begins to resent Lestat for taking her future as a woman away from her. She plans to kill Lestat to escape him, and she and Louis dump his body and live in relative peace for a while before he returns, and Louis sets fire to their home to get rid of Lestat once and for all. 
Claudia and Louis flee to Europe to seek out more vampires and find that many of them are revenants or a sort of mindless animated corpses until they meet Armand and his coven of vampires in Paris. Claudia is unimpressed, but Louis finds himself drawn to Armand, who Claudia is convinced will take Louis away from her. She begs Louis to make a woman named Madeline into a vampire to be her caretaker in case he leaves her, which he does reluctantly. The three of them are kidnapped by Armand's coven, with Lestat arriving shortly after and revealing that Louis and Claudia tried to kill him, a crime among vampires. Louis is imprisoned in a coffin and buried, while Madeline and Claudia are left to die in the sunlight. Uh, It was very sad. It was very sad. Uh, Armand rescues Louis from his coffin, and Louis burns the... I think in French it's like the Théâtre des Vampires, but... Boy, I sound pretentious when I say that. So the theater of vampires, the vampire theater. Um, uh, he, he burns the theater to the ground. Um, devastated by Claudia's death, Louis never really recovers, and he and Armand eventually grow apart. Uh, Louis finds Lestat one more time in the 1920s, giving the interviewer the clue that Lestat is still alive. Louis is weary of his long life and the immortality of it, but the interviewer asks him to turn him into a vampire anyway. Louis attacks him and leaves, and the interviewer leaves to seek out Lestat to transform him. I would attack him too. Like, you just listen to all of this. Like, bro. I would literally, I didn't know that was going to happen, because I couldn't remember. I don't think they really talk about that in the movie. And in the show, he's just mad. Yeah. Ah, uh, God, I love him in the show. He's so good. But in the book, I was like, you listen to this. Bro. And was like, yeah, I want that. That's something that I want. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? At yeah. the same time, I kind of get it. I guess you, you can be like, well, now I know what not to do. Yeah. But... Wild. Wild. Rip to the others, but I'm I'm a different vampire. Yeah. I'm not like other vampires. I'm not like other vampires. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is philosophy. Of how stupid you could be. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Anne Rice's work, uh, it might come as a surprise that so much of Interview with the Vampire is focused on philosophy. Uh, sure, Louis and Lestat kill and maim some people, have an interesting and decadent life and so on. But so much of this book is dedicated to Louise's philosoph- philosophizing about his own morality. And I think that's part of why it's just so good. Yeah. If it, I- wasn't, if it wasn't for that, it would just be like uh typical not typical because it was written before a lot of this stuff right yeah but it would just be a story it holds up though and i think it's because so many later takes on vampires in the style of anne rice did not capture the philosophizing 100 percent. because like uh, like when i think about like when i like we're just saying i would never want to be a vampire the idea of living forever terrifies me yeah it sounds like it sucks that's like i'm afraid of death but, like, living forever sounds worse because, like, the idea of watching everything bad happen mm-hmm. and, like, I don't know, that sounds terrible, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, like, you know, same. I, I actually feel very seen by this dipshit Louis focusing so much Zero on his... Surprising. Yeah, part. focusing so much on whether he's a moral being or not. Like, I feel that. Um, it's just you every day. That, yeah, that's me every day. So I'm, like, reading not this book and joke. I'm, like... Yeah, I'm reading this book and I'm, like, yeah, fucking same, Louis. Um, also, I would fall in love with fucking Lestat, the worst person alive. Um, that, yeah, but you wouldn't act on it. I wouldn't act on it. I do have one ounce of sense more than Louis. Maybe two. Maybe two ounces of sense, but I would be like, oh, wow, this dandy ass but I motherfucker, think, I'm in love with him. I think Louis being, I don't want to call him a hopeless romantic because I don't I think, think he is a you, hopeless. I think it's more like 
delusional romantic. I think he's I think he's a I think he's romantic with a lowercase r and also romantic with a capital R. I well I I only say that because with Armand it just started felt like oh I'm now, now I'm deeply in love again like oh my gosh <laughs> this person just is so I feel like it's almost like um listen yes. Armand in the show is so fucking beautiful. He is. He is a I would be hopelessly in love with him too. That's I saw true. him and I'm like, God, that man is, is such a perfect face. I feel like Louis is delusional enough where it just like works really well. Yeah. Del- delusional. Does, <laughs> do we talk about, we don't talk about Deleuze in this, right? No, we don't talk about Deleuze. Um, we could so have, my fuck, child. there's an essay there oh. about Deleuze and Vamp. Fuck I me. have to remember what Deleuze even, there, we talk about so many He's the becoming guy. Oh, fuck. That is a hard thing to talk about. Yeah. Um, Everything's always becoming, right? Yeah, yeah. The trees are, okay. Yeah, yeah. The trees are greening. That is, that was a very interesting one. Yeah. Um, but (laughs) to return to interview with the vampire, it is interesting to compare this, like this idea of these philosophizing vampires, or rather this, this philosophizing vampire, um, to our concept of pre and post interview with the vampire, vampire literature. Pre interview with the vampire, you had a lot of like, maybe not mindless monsters, but very rarely anything resembling a sympathetic vampire. It's like mindless people. Yeah, yeah. Post interview with the vampire, you have almost entirely sympathetic vampires vampires even if you yourself don't feel that way about them i'm thinking here of characters like my enemy bill compton or edward cullen but my enemy when i read that my enemy bill compton i was like yep i fucking hate bill compton i hate him he's even worse in the book it's even worse when eric's right there right it makes it even worse jesus um which like okay sure Anne rice wrote sympathetic characters big deal everybody's doing that nowadays what makes this particular thing interesting what Rice did in an interview with the vampire is create a character that we ought to feel very strongly about from a moral perspective. Killing people is bad. Sure. And then she complicates that idea. Louis is a fully rounded character. He's not the villain. He's a murderer, but he is not the villain. He's a full adult when he's turned. Yeah. Uh, he comes prepackaged with thoughts, feelings, and regrets that we may identify with. And in fact, I do find a lot to identify with in Louis. Um... The people pleaser. The people pleaser. That's what I get to me. Yeah. And when he becomes a vampire, those thoughts, feelings, and regrets persist, even as he becomes a quote-unquote monster. In humanizing the monster, so to speak, Rice forces us to consider his perspective to contemplate our own monstrousness and how much of it is truly monstrous. So that sounds like an ending to the conversation. Like, that sounds like, okay, we reached the conclusion. That's what this novel is doing. But not here. But not here. Um, Louis in the novel lived during the 1700s or roughly the Age of Enlightenment, in which you had the rise of a lot of important philosophical thinkers on topics like liberty, religion, monarchy, and, the, and so on. You got your Descartes. You got your Jean Locke's. You've got et cetera, et cetera. But not to lose. But not, not to lose. He was later, much, right? much later. Um, but what Louis thinks about more throughout Interview with the Vampire is more in line with existentialism, which we have talked about before on this podcast. Existentialism arose more in the 19th and 20th centuries, though, of course, people mused on these ideas before then, um, and is concerned with, per Wikipedia, quote, the meaning, purpose, and value of human existence, unquote, especially as religion became much less of a presence in the average person's life. Existentialism is where we get Nietzsche's famous God is dead quote. Um, so let's talk... You know, Speaking of God, let's talk talk a little bit about religion and morality. Um, 
we're going to do religion first, then we'll circle back to morality. Uh, Rice was famously Catholic at various points in her life. And I say famously Catholic because these themes are present in her work. Like, mm-hmm. it's not just like she was Catholic, but also, also a lot of themes in her work come from her religion. Um, and she very famously went back to ca- Catholicism later in life. I'll get there in a second. Um, she was raised Catholic, but became agnostic later in life. Um, after two major health scares, as well as the death of her husband, she actually returned to the Catholic Church in the late 90s and 2000s and dedicated the rest of her writing career to writing about God. Like that was a statement that she made. She actually did not, though she rejoined the church, she did not renounce her writing. I thought that she had. She did not. She, I want to read some of what she has to say about yeah, religion. I'd be curious. She, she rejoined the church, but she rejected its stances on many social issues, most notably homosexuality. Um, she did not renounce her earlier work. She believed it to be reflective of her spiritual state at the time. So she's like, I don't feel that way anymore, but it is true to what I felt. Which I think is really respectable. I agree. I agree. I agree. Um, in 2010, she made a public statement about remaining a Christian but leaving the church, feeling that her relationship with Christ, like her personal relationship with Christ, was more important than belonging to a church as the institution was corrupt. The reason I bring all this up is because we can see from her real life that Rice was thoughtful in her rep- her approach to religion. She criticized it. She questioned it and grappled with her relation to it throughout her life, which I think we can see demonstrated in how her characters grapple with religion and morality as mm-hmm. well. Um, so this is a quote from post-existentialism in the neo-Gothic mode and Rice's interview with the vampire by Barbara Frey Waxman, who writes, Ironically, the very fact of his philosophical quest places Louis among the morally and spiritually earnest citizens of our century. Like, Unlike the anti-religious undead in Dracula, Louis does not shrink from the crucifix after he becomes a vampire and in fact, quote, rather likes looking on crucifixes, unquote. <laughs> Early in his vampiric life, he even visits a church, wistfully seeking a priest for confession he also seeks some theological answers to his questions about god's mercy toward killers and his reason for the sacrilege of allowing louis to exist that he winds up at the end of the scene killing the priest in frustration and rage a nietzschean act confirming that god is dead does not lessen the intensity of his quest for a meaningful life and for confirmation of the presence of good and of good and evil principles in the universe by killing the priest, however, Louis relinquishes the Victorian vestiges of his belief in a god and embraces the modern existential tenet of individual moral responsibility. Like Nietzsche, Louis, quote, thinks a human life triumphant just insofar as it escapes from inherited descriptions of the contingencies of its existence and finds new descriptions, unquote. Until the end of the novel, Louis believes he can create himself and make his life meaningful despite the constraints of his circumstances. So that was a rather long quote. So... We'll break that down a bit. Uh, vampires, until this point in fiction, were largely considered to be, if not literally demonic, at least evil and monstrous, monstrous, hence their reaction to religious artifacts in the sun. That's part of where that mythology comes from, is the idea that they were cast out of the light of God, right? So when you confront them with a crucifix, they're horrified by it. They can't go into the sun because it's the light of God, etc., etc., um, Rice already made a hard turn here by making those things not true. And in doing so, she makes her vampires like, quote unquote, evil as in they kill people, but not like spiritually damned, right? There is nothing, because of this, there is nothing religiously evil about the vampire. They occupy a different sta- space than previous vampire fiction. Um, they are potentially created to be evil, i.e. God created them, therefore God made them eat people. But they aren't born of the devil or whatever. There's a, there's like a thin line. Devil there. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's yeah, a yeah. thin line there. But does that make sense? 
I think so. Okay. I think you have to, as long as you, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, because the devil doesn't exist without Christianity, right? For the most part, yeah, yeah. Um, and they also these vampires also don't have to eat people, as Louis demonstrates. Yes, he feels better when he eats people, but he doesn't have to, right? Like, and I don't they have to eat a salad. Will I feel better? Probably. Yeah. And like, he doesn't have to kill people either. We know this from, from Armand's coven, right? Yes. You do not have to kill in order to feed. Which I don't know why that never like, was like, maybe I'll try that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but then, you know, on, on another philosophical note, is denying his true nature a good thing? I don't know. Um, I or mean, probably in this situation. And, but you know, and this is this is like the obvious parallel here. I don't need to eat meat. Well, you would have to to make it like I guess you're gonna have to put create values to like sentient beings and thinking like you're gonna have to create a hierarchy, I guess, in order to make that to make the mm-hmm. case that I just said. And I think that's I think that's where it gets very intentionally tricky. Is is a vampire a more advanced life form than a human? I mean, probably. <laughs> I mean, they were human at some point, so you can only think that this is natural evolution. Right. It gets very- I don't think I wouldn't call it evolution, but for yeah. lack of a better word. It gets very thorny, though, when you start to think, well, like, okay, a cow is not sapient in the same way that a human is sapient, but there are some life forms that are sapient. Whales. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't eat whales, but, but like, like- we trap ro- whales. Sure. Some people do eat whales. Yeah, some um, people do eat whales. Octopus is another one. Those, they're creepy and <laughs> should be- I don't like octopus. <laughs> um, Those are going to kill me at any moment. So you, you're morally justified because they might like kill you first. most of the things in the ocean are allowing us to live. I think you're right. So, or as Catherine M. Ram- Ramsland writes in The Vampire Companion, the official guide to Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles, Louis is- is compelled to search for answers to the ultimate questions of life and is especially concerned to discover whether God exists and if so, if that makes him a child of the devil. Um, so Louis finds that really neither of those things, the idea of whether God exists and if so, does that make him a child of the devil? Louis finds that really neither of those things are true. If God is real, he isn't here to pass judgment. If God isn't real, can there even be a devil? And if even if he is a child of the devil, what do you do with that, right? Like, what does it mean to be a child of the devil? Do you then not act in accordance with your nature? Do you just kill yourself? Like, what is... If you find out you're, you're evil all the way down to your very being, what do you do with that information? Well, you probably aren't... E- well, it's difficult, I guess, yeah, with vampires, because, like... I feel like an evil person wouldn't have those thoughts, but if you're turning into a vampire and a vampire inherently is evil, mm-hmm. that is a very good question. Yeah, it really gets sticky. Like you have to think about it or you become Lestat and you're just an idiot and you don't think about anything. And you turn off your empathy switch. Yeah, you flip this. Turn it off. Um, <laughs> anyway, as Waxman discusses, this places Rice's vampires, Louis specifically, into an immediate philosophical conundrum. Now immortal, Louis has the capability to really consider his morality, right? Death and the afterlife are no longer threats for good behavior, because in a lot of Christian society, we're like, hey, don't do bad things or you go to hell. But if you never die, what reason do you have for not doing bad things? This is like one of the core 
uh, the core struggles of like Nietzschean existentialism, right? If there is no God, what reason do we have to do good things? We have to develop another form of morality, right? Yeah. Um, this is a, 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 a like an argument for both sides of God exists, and yeah, God doesn't exist, which is really interesting. That's what that's what makes it so like something yeah. something so interesting to chew on. Um, and scary, yeah, not scary, but like it's scary I'm for gonna, some people. I'm gonna like fall into my, I'm like gonna fold my brain onto itself over yeah. and over. You're again. gonna be doing some brain origami, yeah, yeah. Um, not even gymnastics, origami, yeah. Instead morality rests in the hands of the individual especially because louis believes that his nature is evil if morality rests in the hands of the individual that is in line with existentialism as waxman explains louis looks for answers in god and doesn't find them and he kills god or in this case god's representative uh he kills him himself bringing a whole new dimension to the idea that god is dead and then he sets out to create himself rather than live in the image of god whether that's the good image or the bad image he believes may have been created because of his nature can i get a, a with existential can you give me a definite like a definition of it because i want to make sure i'm understanding it correctly so existential i know like existential crisis right yeah because i've had those yeah existential existentialism is the branch of philosophy that that basically is like we create ourselves. Um, hold on, let me scroll up. I had. A I'm assuming bit. it's something like it's exit, exist, exist. It's not exist. It's not exit essentialism. It's oh. exist essentialism. Uh, existentialism is the meaning is concerned with the meaning, purpose, and value of human existence. Okay. Um, so, what is my value? What is my purpose? Okay, that's existentialism. Nihil- nihilism is the answer is an answer to existentialism where you say actually there is no inherent meaning we create the meaning yeah that one scares me nothing matters nothing matters yeah you gotta watch every time you have every time you feel nihilism is bad or scary you watch everything everywhere at once and you go oh yeah right um anyway or the good place even yeah or the good place uh in essence he lives in line with existentialism god and religion have no answers for him he kills god or god's proxy and sets out to find and create meaning for himself um before we get into this next quote i mean i'm going to give you a quote but there's another quote to follow up on this idea of like morality and god um but before we get into that i want to talk a little bit about the role of antagonists and villains um so this is a quote from in Anne rice a critical companion oh sorry in Anne rice a critical companion chapter three interview with the vampire by jenny cruzy um cruzy discusses that louis is the protagonist but it's actually the interviewer who is the antagonist because he pushes louis to dive deeper into his sins as cruzy writes this means that the central question is will louis convince the interviewer of the ultimate agony of being a vampire and this event has impact on Louis's Louis's character because he desperately wants to see himself, his identity, as a moral person, even though he is a vampire. And so he wants to warn the interviewer and other mortals of the perils so that they don't fail as he did. Which is why he was so pissed. Which is why he's so bad. He was um, so mad. Yeah. But despite this attempt, the interviewer does end up attracted to the vampire lifestyle, which means that Louis has failed in his goal. As Cruzy writes, quote, this last brief conflict underscores the isolation of Louis's life as a vampire. No one understands his anguish and closes the story, even though the interviewer leaves at the end to search for, I think it's supposed to be Lestat, to search for, it says Louis, but I think it yeah. means Lestat, um, still unsatisfied, unquote. 
Within Louise's story, uh, there are other antagonists, such as Lestat, Santiago, even Armand, Claudia, and himself at times, right? Like, there's a number of potential antagonists. But if we look at the frame narrative, which is actually the narrative, like, the frame narrative is, in fact, the true, like... That's what that means. Yeah, frame narrative is, like, when you have an outside story and then you have the inside story. Yeah, exactly. Um, But if we look at the frame narrative, the story that Louis is actually in at the time of the telling, we can see that the interviewer is, in fact, his final obstacle and that he he, in fact, does not succeed in overcoming that obstacle. Well, maybe if he was truthful, (laughs) then maybe it would have been better. Like, he's a big fat liar. (laughs) He's just the best, especially in the show. I really liked that in the show they were they were doing a second interview because yeah. he's like, yeah, I lied a whole bunch. The first I, time. I, I, I 100% agree. And I like how more, it was definitely more clear that he was a liar from the beginning, which yeah. set you up to like, really like watch the show intently, but still be, still be surprised. Yeah. Like the, the twist, I was like, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Like when he's like, I know actually what you did. Mm-hmm. It was good. Um, but what we're more likely to think about is Lestat here as far as antagonists, right? Lestat is in many ways the antagonist of Interview with the Vampire. But one of the important things about being an antagonist is that being an antagonist is distinct from being a clear villain. You know, villains are antagonists, but not all antagonists are villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lestat creates the circumstances and obstacles that shape Louis' journey, but not necessarily for malicious reasons. Selfish ones, certainly, right? Mm-hmm. But not always malicious. No. He um, really loved him. I, yeah, I, I, I In agree. In the most fucked up In way. In the most fucked up way. But, but yes. true for Louis, too. Yeah. Um, so this is another quote from Post-Existentialism in the Neo-Gothic Mode and Rice's Interview with the Vampire by Barbara Frey Waxman. Um, by seeing evil as a concept defined according to one's perspective, by implicitly criticizing God's decision-making as random and indiscriminate, and hence by subverting the concept of a God who sanctions moral beliefs and conduct, Lestat is articulating existentialism's central tenet. As philo- philosopher Robert G. Olson puts it, quote, each man will tend to become a law unto himself and choose for himself, unquote. Louis gradually moves toward creation of his own moral laws, yet by weakening Louis's ability to choose, Lestat also makes him question human responsibility for ethical behavior, without which the universe is empty and chaotic. Caught between existentialism and post-existentialist views of life, Louis suffers moral pl- paralysis. So, notably, the week doesn't just get to the status of creating his own moral framework on his own. Without Lestat, he wouldn't reach that point, and not just because it's Lestat that turns, in, turns him into a vampire. Lestat is calculating and uncaring about humanity, presenting an alternative to how Louis feels, pushing him out of his comfort zone, especially because Louis has no idea how a vampire is, quote-unquote, supposed to behave. His only guidance is how he feels and how Lestat acts. And as we know, Lestat doesn't know jack shit. He knows nothing. And that was my favorite, like one of my favorite parts. He doesn't know anything. Louis or Lestat is fully operating in this existentialist and even nihilist mode of none of this matters. I create my own existence. And that's the most. you. Yeah. He He is his own God. Yeah. Lestat truly does function as his own God and to an extent Louis' God. But it totally backfired on him because Louis did not do what he wanted. Exactly. He got so annoyed, especially in the shower. He got so annoyed. Like Real Lucifer vibes here. Yeah. He was like, just stop and like take a breath. And like, fair. Louis needed to just take a fucking breath sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Waxman says that Lestat pushes Louis between existential and existentialism and post-existentialism, which she... 
says is going a step beyond existentialism. So existentialism recognized the relativity of moral morality or meaning, right? It's all relative. Um, while post existentialism also acknowledges the things held sacred in existentialism, such as freedom and choice are also relative pointing toward constraints on those things as obstacles. This is a sort of, um, I can't remember if this is the exact phrasing we used for it, but we discussed it in the matrix episode, a sort of soft determinism where like, yes, I have the freedom and free will to pursue various, you know, goals for myself, but also those goals are limited by outside factors over which I have no control. Yeah. Um, so Waxman, (laughs) yeah. So Waxman says here that Lestat in showcasing moral relativity, i.e. it is not bad for a vampire to kill humans because they have to. And also morality is made up anyway. Um, so in showcasing moral relativity, Lestat is occupying an existentialist frame of mind. The we, on the other hand, is occupied with post-existentialist concerns, such as whether it's possible for him to make choices at all. To the interviewer, Louis describes his quote-unquote decision to become a vampire as if it wasn't a decision at all, mm-hmm. and not just because Lestat effectively makes the decision for him. It's not a decision because it feels inevitable, like the only natural place his life could go because of various factors in his life, including the death of his brother. I think, too, it was a really good coping mechanism for him yeah. to feel that way. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a form of like self-punishment and yeah. like he feels guilty about his brother's death and when he becomes a vampire he's like oh it's because i'm a monster yeah um giving reason to something really helps yeah um so if this is this becoming a vampire feels like the only natural place that his life could go not notably because there is a divine plan he, he rejects the idea of a divine plan eventually right but just because other people had already made decisions that led him to this path that's why it's post-existentialist he's also pointing toward the relativity around freedom and choice he doesn't have complete freedom or choice right because other decisions were already made um, so this is a quote from the Vampire Companion, the official guide to Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles by Catherine M. Ramsland. And I, this is the world's tiniest text. So pardon me if I sound different for a second. Um, this is from the, it really is. this is from the entry for aesthetic choice. Um, the idea that guides Louise early, e- early years as a vampire. That's an aesthetic choice. After he describes in an interview with a vampire how he killed animals rather than humans for years, the boy reporter asks, asks if this was an aesthetic choice rather than a moral one. Louis answers that they are the same. The artist may break social codes of morality, but that does not make his choice, when it is in the name of art, immoral. Louis had enacted this mode of killing partly because he wished to understand death in stages. He wanted to begin with the lower species, saving the experience of human death for when he had a more mature understanding. For him, the process served a higher spiritual principle and was thus a moral choice. So, uh, an aesthetic choice is one made to enrich the life of the person making the choice. They make the choice because it is pleasurable or because it will improve their life. So aesthetic. So aesthetic. Um, so the interviewer asks Louis if the choice to eat animals is aesthetic or not. I, or, or sorry, if it's aesthetic or moral, i.e. made because it is quote unquote the right thing to do. M- Louis responds that they are the same thing, that there is no difference between the aesthetic and the moral. It's not that Louis vampires or artists operate outside of morality, only that their aesthetic choices are also moral choices. I feel like this could make an episode in itself. Yeah, it's um, very conf- not confusing, but it's like... It's complex. It feels like Inception a little bit. Yeah, and well, I mean, this comes up a lot with regard to... And oh, here I'm going to reveal a 
common topic of conversation among Mar- amongst Mary and I, but like quote unquote degenerate art. Yeah. Right. Like if I make art that is challenging in some way and maybe a little gross, is that an aesthetic or a moral choice? Right. What are we doing with that? Is my choice immoral because it operates in a way that pushes at boundaries? Like, uh, Alan Morris, uh, yeah. Thank you too. for not picking a timely example. I can't even remember. Lost Girls. Oh, yeah. Lost Girls. Yeah. Is yeah. yeah. Um, like, is that immoral? I don't know. We should do Lost Girls. Someday. We should. It would be really fucking interesting. Yeah. It would um, be really fuck. I so love to talk about Alan Moore because he's a fucking, like, just wild person. I love it. Um, I feel like, yeah, like I said, this could make an episode in itself. But the way I'm seeing this in conversation with Waxman's idea of post-existentialism is that if we can understand that Louis is sometimes operating in a post-existentialist mode, then his quote-unquote choice, whether moral or aesthetic, is not a choice at all up to him, right? He's already had some options removed. Um, This is distinct from the idea of fate as predetermined, which would suggest a god. Instead, Waxman's concept of post-existentialism would mean that a person is aware of all the forces that act on them, which leads to a different feeling of inevitability. And with the interviewer later in the story asking Louis to make him a vampire, it does begin to seem from Louis's perspective that nothing he does matters and not in the nihilist nothing matters thumbs up kind of way, Mm -hmm. right? It would be like a contextual destiny yeah of like this was meant to happen because this happened and that happened and this yeah happened. yeah not necessarily because god said. it's that sort of soft determinism thing yeah like we're reaching the end of a stack of dominoes that was tipped a long time ago and like almost kind of feeds into like the butterfly effect if you change yeah and you're trying to change a shit ton of other stuff yeah it doesn't like remove choice but it certainly limits the choice. Yeah if, yeah. if freedom and choice are core tenets of existentialism, post existentialism asks, but what about all of the things that limit my ability to choose? Yeah. Right. Like, and, and his, you know, is that an aesthetic or a moral choice? It's the only choice. Yeah. Right. There's no difference. You can't, yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't disentangle you can, those yeah, things. You can't assign one or the other. Yeah. I mean, you can, but you know, yeah, it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. So all that's kind of depressing. Um, let's talk a little bit about what purpose vampirism is serving in the story. Uh, and women sex. in sex in women and vampires nightmare utopia by Judith E. Johnson. The author actually compares the way that vampirism works in the story to a psychedelic like peyote. Hmm. Uh, the experience opens Louise's mind in a way that he never experienced as a human. As a vampire, he sees things with more detail and spends hours contemplating simple things. He is in extreme mindfulness mode. He's in a perpetual state of mindfulness meditation. Um, vampirism, like psychedelics for many people, gets him out of his familiar experience and forces him to look at things from a radically different perspective. It also literally takes him out of his humanity, which he can now consider in a whole new light, right? Like, it's hard to consider the nature of humanity when you are, in fact, being human. Human. Like, yeah. it's hard to think about. It's, it's like that kind of thing when you, um, everything feels natural to you when you live in a given culture mm-hmm. and it's not until you look outside of that culture that you begin to see the artifice of it and we'll I talk s- more about that later i saw uh, a good example of this of people who grew up really poor and mm-hmm. their partners didn't and things like um one of them was like sharing the same bath water mm-hmm. as the rest of the family and like t- thinking that's 100 percent normal yeah um it's not um, but you grow up thinking yeah. that's normal. You have abs. You question zero. Mm-hmm. You just see that as the way that things are done. That's just how it's done. Um, 
because we are meant to sympathize with Louis to some degree, it can do the same thing for us, right? We can't become vampires, probably. Uh, but vampirism... As far as we know. As far as we know. Um, because we're sympathizing with Louis, vampirism, you know, re- represents a number of things, some of which we'll get into shortly. But we also, you know, again, we feed off of animals or we metaphorically, hopefully may feed off of one another energy vampires yeah where does that place us morally like because we can't experience vampirism but louis can and we can identify with louis to some degree we are then able to look at our own life through a lens of estrangement right through our morality um so let's talk a little bit about good and evil and why stories and characters like this about people who grapple with moral quandaries and don't always win intrigue us even though we know that they are about bad people as always (laughs) i come back to this question time and time again because while i am a person who chooses kindness and compassion whenever i can and i am able to do that in real you know whenever i can and i'm able to make those choices in real life i'm drawn to stories about fucked up people making hard choices that don't always end well that's like an understatement yeah you really love it i love it i love it you love a good fuck up i do and i see people suggesting that my draw like not necessarily my draw specifically but you 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 know you get it um the draw i see people suggesting that that the draw to these things is indicative of some kind of moral failing on my part like like i want to i want to see degenerate people doing degenerate things because it speaks to my own degeneracy I like, sorry, folks, I just love to watch a person fuck their life up because I'm not willing to do those things myself. <laughs> I'm drawn to a very specific form of self-destructive character because I I see myself. I guess I am drawn to that degenerate part of myself, right? Like, I, I see that darkness in myself, but I don't indulge it. And so I explore that darkness through fiction. Um and it is it's indulgent to me and if it's not everybody's method of indulging and nor would i suggest that it should be but i am desperately asking us to consider the way that we as individuals see and interact with media the way that we see and interact with media is not the same way that everybody sees and interacts with media and if i can do that so can you anyway just wanted to give that little disclaimer because i'm about to talk about how much i fucking love lestat uh this is from, this is a quote from The Politics of Loving the Bad Guy, which is a video by Princess Weeks. Um, there is an inherent distrust of altruistic goodness. People don't trust goodness. Good is so often arbitrary and crafted by those in power. We have come to distrust the intentions of those who use their privilege in order to protect the world or have freedom from all that ego and power would create. So your mileage may vary on an individual basis, right? Like we may, as individuals, we may feel like, no, actually, I love really good characters. And that's fine. It's not saying that you don't love superheroes. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think there are elements of of this quote that are broadly true. It is hard to believe that in our capitalistic white cis hetero patriarchy that people would just do things out of the kindness of their hearts, right? We're taught that it's not something people do. Media sometimes pushes back on this, but I think we're skeptical of that too. And I think that's why one reason why we get those like edgy interpretations of children's media. Like you have a piece of children's media that's like all about the power of friendship or whatever. And then somebody comes along and is like, actually it's about that actually they were dead the whole time and it's like or maybe it's just what it said on the fucking tin right i just watched a horror movie based off winnie the pooh yes it was not good but it was beautiful (laughs) i don't know how they did that um princess weeks said this particular quote over footage of superman who has become kind of the poster child for media that's ideologically out of date when it comes to representing goodness right Mm -hmm. um of course people do still like superman that is it 
of course people fucking do. But it does become hard to identify with a character who is that good all the time. It, it starts to feel unrealistic. The flip side of this argument, of course, is, is of course, that it, that it is unrealistic, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course it's unrealistic. It's meant to be aspirational. We could all be good, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about why we like bad. I mean, I understand the p- appeal, but um, I don't know. Let's give a little. I guess you'd have to have a really good when you have a vi- really good villain, it works. Yeah, but I mean, you like media where that, yeah. oh, that's aspirational. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I'm thinking, especially children's media is this way a lot. Mm-hmm. Like a Steven Universe is like the prime example. It's filled with flawed Inspiration, characters. Inspiration, yeah. It's meant, but it's also meant like when you see them overcome their obstacles and they behave kindly, then you're like, yeah. oh, that's aspirational. Yeah, you're right. This is in an ideal world how I would like to behave, and we can model as our- a crystal as a crystal. Um we can model our behavior on that. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking no, no, about no. what draws us to the bad. Lestat wasn't watching Steven Universe. Lestat did not watch Steven Universe. Um, maybe he would have been better if he had. Uh, instead, Princess Week- Weeks argues that corruption is more interesting and believable to us in our current era. It's easier to believe that somebody is a corrupt asshole than that they're totally good with no ulterior motives. She brings this up to discuss why people are attracted to villains, even though villains do horrible things. There's a part of us that is drawn to the darkness and that finds that darkness more believable than pure goodness. This section made me think the most because I love villains, Mm -hmm. um, but I also have the tendency to trust people too much of like, I... I think people are usually going to try to do the right thing. Yeah. And I believe them. And oftentimes they don't, but I still continue to believe them. But so like this, like I, the idea of like, Oh, I think people are going to do bad things. So I like villains. Cause that's what they're going to do. It was really interesting to me. And I feel like I was like, why do I like villains? And I feel like it's, they're just fucking honest at least. Yeah. About it. And there's, <laughs> there is that sense of indulgence. Yeah. To them too. Like, I was discussing this the other night with a friend because we were watching like the top 10 hottest villains list or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, none of these people are attractive to me. And um, my friend was like, well, you don't like villains. And I'm like, she's like, you like sweet good boys. I mean, no. look at your husband. And I'm like, I'm like, you're not wrong. But the things the things I'm attracted to are not necessarily the things that I would decide to pursue in real life. Yeah. Because my favorite characters are disastrous, self-destructive fuck ups. Like, yeah. That's my favorite. I would never, ever in real life want to date somebody like that. I would be dating myself. I love to <laughs> read books with horrible people and books where, like, women give up a lot of control with the idea of not having control over my life. Um, fuck that. Right. And that's exactly Absolutely that's exactly that. it. It's indulgent yeah. for you. It's like, this is something I, I don't actually want in real life, yeah. but that is nonetheless interesting and even hot to me yeah it's like being able to like disengage right and like put myself in a safe place where i still do have control yeah um you can put that book down anytime yeah i can't and i have when things got (laughs) i'm like this is too much can't do this um but yeah like i think part of it though is the i trust really easily and it's burned me in the past but i still continue to trust and at least like a villain's gonna be like for the most part not always truthful with it and i Mm -hmm. think back to when we were talking about twilight and um um, Edward was doing something and I was like oh it pissed me off like the way he was talking and you're like how can that piss you off when you read about people who literally go kill a guy because <laughs> they looked at the girl and I had to really think about that and I think it's because they're open with it mm-hmm. whereas Edward is supposed to be a good guy and I'm right. like you're you're lying you're that what you're doing is not you do good. hate a liar yeah I fucking hate a liar <laughs> and so I think that's part of it is there and like Kylo Ren he was so open with his badness right. and I was like you like 
all these people are trying to make him like this good guy and stuff but, like that wasn't the most appealing thing for me like yeah. i like the idea of like oh, there's ben solo and there's kylo ren but you can't really like pull him apart and that's what's really important like to my attraction to that mm-hmm. because he's honest yeah and i think honesty is one of the biggest things for me um and I think that's part of the reason why. Because I don't really feel like people will do the b- bad things. Like, they're always going to want to. I've worked with people who believe that. And yeah. it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't believe that I'd be like, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Like, that. that is just wild to them. So, like, I'm glad I feel this way. Yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> but sure. But I think that for me, I really had to think, like, okay, well, why do I like villains? Because I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. Anyways, this kind of thing can be really thought provoking, yeah. like including what we're introduced to in Interview with a Vampire. Mm-hmm. This idea that there is a part of us that is drawn to darkness and that finds darkness more believable than pure goodness is, I think, at work in the vampire metaphor of Interview with a Vampire. Yeah. The interviewer is faced with the idea that being immortal and powerful has not led Louis to happiness or fulfillment, and his response is, is not, "Oh, I don't want any of that," then, but rather, "Make me a vampire immediately." Yeah. Right? He is still drawn to that darkness, even knowing the pain that it has caused louis he would rather have power and immortality than arguably happiness yeah he chooses power over happiness and that tells you a lot about the state of the world in which we live the mm-hmm. capitalist white yep. cis hetero patriarchy right it is it is more appealing to have power than happiness and that that single thing says so much does that scare you no I I have already grappled with that truth. It's sad to me. And I resist that. I resist that truth as, on an individual level. I fought right? that because I felt I fought that in that um, taking jobs that don't pay as much, mm-hmm. but I'm happier. Yeah. Um, it's good to be a better idea. I can tell you firsthand experience is a better idea. It is. It is. It is important to me to be fulfilled in my life, yeah. not necessarily to be powerful, but to be fulfilled. Um, do I still want power to some degree? Yeah. Right? Like, I don't want to yeah. be powerless, but I don't necessarily want to have power over people. Yeah. You know? Other people, they want to fulfill their bank accounts. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this, this fact that the, that the interviewer doesn't respond to this tale of immortality and woe and say, Oh, that sounds terrible. I'm sorry for you. And instead says, I want that too. And gets just aggressive about it. Yeah. What does that say about humanity? Right? Like, what does that say about us? And it is about us. Right? Yeah. Um, which I think is why I think Anne Rice probably had, well, I know she had like a, um, not beef, but strong feelings about Twilight because what's her name said something first. But I feel like part of that, cause I think Twilight doesn't grapple with that at all. No. And so I think for her, it just is like becoming a vampire and staying in stasis forever is aspirational. In yeah. And I think that for, I think for like Anne Rice, I could see her seeing that and being like, you are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, straight up, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. wrong. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to say about the whole God and morality thing? No. Cool. Let's talk about class. Um, one of the oldest metaphors associated with vampires outside of just the other, which is so broad that we couldn't possibly just talk about the other. Um, so one of the oldest metaphors associated with vampires is class, right? uh, Dracula involves a man who owns a castle. He's a count. Uh, Carmilla and Carmilla is a countess. Um, even in Marx, repeatedly, Marx invokes ca- vampirism many times to describe things like labor exploitation and the relationships between the classes. He uses the metaphor of the vampire to say essentially the, uh, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Bourgeoisie. We'll say bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie essentially feeds off of the proletariat. Mm-hmm. The proletariat, they fatten themselves on their blood, mm-hmm. you know, the, which in this case is their labor. 
So even the potential like real world inspirations for vampire myths, such as Vlad the Impaler and Elizabeth Bathory, had wealth and status over their victims. Like they were literally bleeding their subjects and enemies dry. Like that's literally what they were doing. And when you look at vampires broadly, you see a lot of upper class dandy-esque types who are typically able-bodied, thin and white. Like Generally speaking, when you look broadly at iconic vampires, those are the things that you're going to see. They often represent the upper crust, especially because vampires do not have to work for a living. Yeah. Right? They literally do not. They live lives of leisure, usually taking money from their victims. Who is writing the vampire landlord novel? Right? Right? Um, it is worth noting here that there is much about vampire myth that descends from Dracula that is anti-Semitic in nature, intentionally or no, specifically the tying together of blood, wealth, and certain physical features that characterize figures like Dracula and Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. Not every writer who follows that tradition is anti-Semitic, but it's good to know about the foundations and what coded meaning these features may have. So I'm going to link in the show notes to Vampire Books, Deconstructing the Anti-Semitic History of Vampires with Deke Moulton by Amanda Kong. God, I thought you were going to say Landlord Vampire novel. I wish. I wish. I'll Google that next. Um, but uh, that article gives some context to the to the idea of um, many classic vampire stories as having anti-Semitic coding. Um, so in Interview with the Vampire, we see much the same connection between wealth, whiteness, able-bodiedness, thinness, and so on, with the obvious exception of the TV version of Louis, who is black. We'll touch more on that later. Um, Louis owns a plantation with slaves, right? Like just, that's his effect. Oh my Seems god. Gay. Does seem gay. Um, at this point... Uh, we don't know Lestat's history, but he is attracted enough to the upper crust life that he involves himself in Louise's life to get his plantation. And in all the adaptations, they live this sort of beautiful life of leisure in beautiful homes without really having to work for any of it. Decadence was a great explanation of it all. Yeah. Uh, This is especially interesting concerning Louise's origins as a slave owner and arguably his history in the show as well, considering it's not his body that he is selling, right? It's as it's the enslaved people performing the labor while he reaps the benefits. There is a justice, in my opinion, to the revolt against him, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, in the video, The Gay Appeal of Toxic Love by James Summerton, Summerton discusses a few toxic relationships between queer, queer characters in popular media and why queer audiences may be attracted to that. One of the sections of the video discusses the historical uses of vampires in stories, specifically in a Christian context. Vampires represent which can be uh, what can be seen as anti-Christian values, such as sex, death, and opulence, mm-hmm. all tangled up together in undeath. They could be parables to Christian audiences. Don't indulge in these things, or you too will become undead and unloved by God. And wealth specifically, as he discusses, was not aspirational to Catholic audiences because it was easier for poor people to get into heaven. Thus, wealth was also a symbol of evil. If you were a poor person, because it was easier to control you if you didn't have the resources to fight back. So wealth became poor. uh, Poverty became associated with goodness and therefore wealth is evil. So if you aspire to be wealthy, you might as well be aspiring to be cast out of heaven. The manipulation of it all. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's disgusting. Yep. Um, And further, there was a connection between wealth and queerness because wealth was a moral issue in these times, Hmm. not in the way it is now. 
Uh, now it seems more like if you're poor, you're a good person. If you're rich, you're a bad person. Um, you mean the opposite. If you're poor, you're a bad person. No, now, like, I, well, at least among, like, people of our demographic. Of our demographic, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, cause I'm like, a lot of people are demonized poor people. Yeah. 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 Sorry. The, among our peers. Us. Um, yeah. People like us. Yes. Um, because wealth was a moral issue in these times, not in the way it is now, and queerness was not normalized, homosexuality became a similar symbol of excess and even vampirism, mm-hmm. especially because of Polidori's The Vampire, which we'll discuss in a bit. Um, and I'll put the link to that video in the show notes. I, for some reason, posted it way down here. <laughs> anyway, the point here is that wealth and class have long been associated with vampirism. I don't know that Anne Rice does a ton with this in the book specifically. Uh, I do wonder if it's a it's a focus in later books in the Vampire Chronicles. But I find it interesting that this is an angle of vampirism that sh- maybe she didn't challenge as much. There's a there's mm-hmm. still a lot of aspiration to the wealth that the vampires enjoy. I think it would have been interesting because if if queerness and, and being gay is linked to vampirism because of evil, it would really make it would. I think that there could have been a really good conversation because in the book they don't have sex because drinking blood is so much more enjoyable and it would make sense of like well the whole reason like if if you're not going to procreate then what's the point of all plus a lot of other things right but if you're if you have no intent to actually have sex then this is great this is perfect for you yeah because you don't need the right parts while you still have the right parts either way but i don't know i think that there's i think definitely there's way more that could have been talked about it's very um, interesting. You have anything else to say about class? No, rich people suck. <laughs> True. Uh, let's talk about race. So about Anne race, baby. <laughs> Anne Rice's vampires in the novel and in the movie are white. Uh, in fact, most of the characters are white. The clearest exception being the enslaved people on Louise's plantation. The only people to recognize that he and Lestat are not human and who rebel against them for that. Even though Louis is our protagonist and we empathize with him to some extent, I couldn't help but feel poetic justice there. Like, fuck, dude, you were a vampire before Lestat ever got to you, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's so wild to think of him sitting around being upset about morality and life when he literally purchased people to make money for him. It is a perfect, like, it was. she's a good writer. Yeah. She's a good yeah. setting this up. Just disgusting. Yeah. Just disgusting. Um, this is something I wish was a little more emphasized in the original novel. I don't think Rice is cavalier about the fact that Louis is a slave owner, but Rice plays less of a role in the story than I would have liked. Yeah. Um, in Princess Weeks's video, Why Are There So Many Confederate Vampires? Weeks discusses the ties between vampire stories, especially modern vampire stories, and associations with slavery in the American Civil War. Hmm. As she notes, many, maybe even most, popular vampire media of the past few decades have involved not just vampires and enslaved people, but specifically Confederate soldier yeah. vampires. Vampire uh, Diaries? Yep. Interview with the Vampire has Louis owning enslaved people, but not the Confederacy angle, which we can make assumptions given the fact that he owned enslaved people and lived in Louisiana. But the story doesn't contain that. So he isn't a Confederate in the same way that Jasper Cullen and Damon Salvatore are, right? Like they are literally Confederate soldiers. Uh, Weeks notes in her video that unlike most media that contains Confederate vampires, Interview with the Vampire does not sidestep the issue of slavery. Jasper and Damon are Confederate soldiers, but never discuss what they're fighting for. I think there's at one point where, like, Damon is like, this doesn't feel right, brother. What, what doesn't feel right, Damon? What I just said. What is it, Damon? <laughs> what about this doesn't feel right? 
let's turn to vampires instead. Don't think about it. Yeah. Interview with the vampire instead says, yeah, Louis owns slaves, which is very interesting. And I think is part of where his moral quandary comes from as far as grappling with his monstrousness. So throughout the video, Weeks discusses Lost Cause mythology, which is an anti-historical interpretation of the events of the Civil War that states that the Confederate cause was just, heroic, and most importantly, not about slavery. Um, it began in the 1800s and continues to the present day. It reimagines slavery as a positive thing and denies that the abhorrent conditions and inherent immorality that is owning people. And well, they have to when they support prisons. Yep. And it reframes the war to be about states' rights. What, what rights? What the right to what ones? (laughs) Um, Shows, books, and movies that romanticize being a Confederate soldier while sidestepping the issue of slavery are part of this uh, this anti-historical explanation of the Civil War. Yes, I mean the Vampire Diaries. Yes, I mean Twilight. They are part of Lost Cause mythology. They are actively destructive. My mom loves a good Southern Confederate show. Yeah, she is very not for it right but right she loves the romanticism but because that's how it's created i mean so the lost cause mythology specifically ties into the the like sidestepping of slavery Mm -hmm. as an issue or acting like no these were good slave owners yeah yeah these were the good ones they treated their slaves with respect yo they owned them that's fu- that's fucked. I don't care how nice they were to the people whose bodies they owned. I saw uh, an argument for this recently, and it was, it was that terrible woman. And uh, she said, but the slaves knew nothing else, which no- definitely wasn't true. Um, therefore, they were happy because they had nice slave owners. Fuck off. She's a horrible person. She's the she's the trans woman who is conservative and then suddenly had the epiphany that conservatives actually don't care about her. <sighs> Ugh. Anyways. Um so interview with the vampire, notably, does not do this. Louis is a slave owner, full stop. It may not be treated with the depth that I would prefer to see. Less time is spent on Louise ruminating over his monstrousness pre-Listat than I would like. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate that is there. That it is there because it grounds the story in reality and lets us pass judgment on Louis, even if he doesn't judge himself as harshly as I would. I can look at Louis and be like, there's a lot about you that I find relatable, but not that. Well, I think it makes sense in that if you were to look at it as... If he had to really look into it, he, it would like be worse for him. I, I would yeah. imagine it would be worse for him. So he's able to interrogate the things he's able to handle, but not really because that going further would really send him. Yeah. And like, it does still, it does put you in the position of in what ways am I like this? Yeah. Like I'm, I don't, I'm not a slave owner. That's disgusting. Um, you own your cats and dogs, but in what ways do I benefit from that kind of labor? Yeah. In what ways, you know, my cell phone, you know, yeah. fast fashion or the meat industry, Fi- fires in the summer, who are on the front line, people who are in prison. Right. Like, in what ways am I still benefiting from the exploited labor of people? And not when I say exploited labor, I don't just mean like the barista. Yeah. I mean, like, that's pennies. also exploitation, but not in the same way that like child slaves making yeah. my new shirt from Shein. Yeah, it is you know it's not the same. No, they have state of the art facilities. Yeah, they just got hit with a racketeering charge. Oh my god, um, those influencers were so stupid. Jesus Absolutely Christ. idiots. Um, so why Anne Rice chose to include this at all if it's not super key to Louise's development is an interesting question. It could be mean to point to some hypocrisy on Louise's part, 
or to further the metaphorical vampirism of being a human or a man or a white person in the South. Something a commenter named J.R. Chan... I'm guessing here. J.R. Chanchu3895 brought up in the comments to Princess Week's video really interested me. Um, so this person wrote, Rice's choice of the South as ground zero for her series is obvious when you consider that she was seeking to revamp the vampire genre for a new world audience. The old world vampire stories epitomized in Bram Stoker's Dracula had certain traits that made it, made it iconic, an upper class wealthy man who moonlights as a supernatural killer. Growing up in the flush of the golden age of the serial killer, Anne Rice saw the parallels between the vampire and the names from the six o'clock news that gripped the nation with horror. And like any good writer, she sought to capitalize on this. But how do you do so when the vampire is, at the time, so firmly tethered to the old world as knights to Europe and ninja to Japan? Hmm. Simple, you identify the iconic vampire elements listed above, namely a rural place prone to superstition with lots of poor, helpless, with lots of poor, helpless, I think, people and a powerful aristocrat. The slave South was the perfect fit. New Orleans in particular is the one place where African traditions commingled with religious superstition to create a unique occult vibe. That this mosaic was born of slavery was even better for slavery by design is a predatory practice. The many toiling for the few with no rights to their labor, time, freedom, food, even their own children. With what more, the very blood in their veins. Louis de Pont du Lac was born. All these later stories missed the point of Anne Rice's slave owning, slave eating vampire, vampire, telling an audience gripped with fear of serial killers tales about an ancient unstoppable murderer from the voodoo infested South. Hmm. So I think we should tread carefully when we talk about the idea of that the enslaved people on Louise plantation were more in tune with the occult or supernatural than their white counterparts. On the one hand, if we're looking from a historical perspective, it is likely to be true. The traditions of Louisiana voodoo rose up through a blending of the region's colonial Roman Catholic faith was colonized by the French and the Spanish um, with traditional beliefs of the West African enslaved people, as well as the Haitian voodoo tradition. The system of belief includes a closer relationship with deities and the spiritual world than we expect from Christianity, which at the time especially was filtered through the church, right? You didn't talk directly to God except through prayer. God instead was translated for you by the church. Just like Golden Compass. <laughs> um, as people familiar with exploitation and the spiritual world, it does track logically that enslaved people and even, you know, free black people in the South might be more inclined to suspect a supernatural explanation for Louis or Lestat than most. That said, there is a trend of assuming black people know about magic that gives rise to the magical Negro trope, right? That's why I say we should be careful with it. Contextually, there is some sense to the idea. But if we only express the idea as the enslaved people are black, therefore they would know a vampire, we are walking a thin racist line, right? I walked the line. <laughs> That's what that song was about. Yeah. The, it, we have to be careful that we are exploring the whole idea and not using shorthand because there is an assumption in white supremacist society that people of color, including black people, but not exclusively black people, have a tie to nature and the land and supernatural powers in a way that can be... In Some some people view this positively and they're like, oh, they really know what's going on. And some, some people are like, they're evil and nasty. And, and that's... They weaponize it. Yeah, we have to be careful with this kind of thing. That said, 
what the commenter says here is interesting and also not like and it's the comment is not enforcing the magical negro thing i just wanted to make that point as we get into the topic um i hadn't thought about the prevalence of serial killers in the 70s um when rice would have been working on this book and how that might have in some way inspired the in, the interrogation into the morality of a killer right mm-hmm. um a serial killer is not the same thing as a vampire who kills to live arguably it doesn't seem as though the interview with the vampire the vampire vampires have to kill um but when you're faced with monstrosity it can be interesting to interrogate it right it can be interesting to try to understand how that monstrosity functions and in america we don't have a history of feudalism or even monarchy that's really comparable to the history of europe right so we can't look at kings and queens and be like well this is how you know this is how vampirism works instead we uh, we have a very clear and direct analog of vampirism and slavery where one person feeds off many mm-hmm. in an exceedingly cruel and exploitative fashion, right? Um, given Anne Rice being born in New Orleans and no doubt growing up with the folklore and history of the region, it does make sense that when trying to transport the story of a killer to America, she would set it in the area that is rich with that history, that, that history of exploitation, superstition, etc., and again, I appreciate that slavery is integrated into the narrative because it is part of American history. And to set it in the South in the area that it is set in without including it to some degree, especially for a wealthy man like Louis, would be lost cause mythology, whether Rice intended it or not. Right. It would be furthering that ideology. Yeah. Where this gets especially interesting to me is the TV show, which has Jacob Anderson, a man of color and specifically a mixed race slash biracial black man playing Louis. Instead of being a slave owner, this version of Louis is black and and an owner of a series of, I wrote brothers, I meant brothels, <laughs> a series of brothels in New Orleans. The show takes place in 1910 to begin with, setting it after the Civil War and therefore after the Emancipation Proclamation. So whatever Louis's background might have been with regard to slavery, he is no longer enslaved, right? Um, but importantly, he still makes his fortune off the labor and bodies of others. No matter how good of a brothel owner he is, it is still not his body on the line, yeah. right? He is not a sex worker. And he's making the money and giving it out. Yes. He controls, in this case, the, the, the quote-unquote means of production. Um, it is not the same as slavery, but it is an especially exploitative means of making money, right? Mm-hmm. Um but adding in the element of racism to Louis's character, the show is able to dive even deeper into the arbitrary hatred and cruelty that humanity expresses. Um, this is a quote from the messy, qu- thrilling queer allegory in Interview with a Vampire, which is by Alex Abad Santos, who writes, Vampires, as Lestat demonstrates, see themselves as superior to humans, and thus they don't abide by the same set of cultural norms that exist for humankind. Vampires don't partake in racism, sexism, and homophobia because all of humanity is beneath them, let alone humanity's awful hang-ups. Louis, a queer black man in the 1910s, feels the full force of that bigotry. Thus, a huge part of Lestat's undead cell to Louis are telepathic complaints of how stupid and ugly racist humans are, and how these dim creatures treat Louis less than because of the color of his skin. To Lestat, humans are the monsters. Now, humans are the real monsters is hardly a fresh take in horror at this point, right? (laughs) But this goes beyond the typical angle by incorporating race. Uh, It's not just that humanity is capable of cruelty. It's that it's capable of cruelty for stupid fucking reasons, right? Like, this is so stupid. Like, I I know this is not a fresh hot take or anything, but when you really think about it, racism is so fucking stupid. Yeah. Just making up a problem for no reason. 
Well, I mean, it's just an excuse. Manipulation. It's just an excuse for manipulation and yeah. violence and so on. But do you ever just think about something and you're like, Jesus Christ? Uh, we're not even talking about money or power, except that we are always talking about money yeah. and power, right? We are talking about the simple fact that people hate one another over something as inconsequential as how much melanin is in their skin or who they are attracted to. Like, these are stupid fucking reasons to hate people. Yeah, they're stupid. And, but uh, we've they, had of years course, and years. There are means to an end. They're yeah. not, it's not actually about that. Well, it feels very much like what we were saying earlier of like the poor people um are good as a way to like manipulate them yeah, yeah, and yeah, like yeah. what you were saying when i mentioned golden compass catholicism i believe specifically and in, like intended to keep long ago like medieval times and probably before that um the restricting oh, access to the yeah books. or like keeping them illiterate yeah yeah keeping them Ill- illiterate and so it just kind of feels it's just another manipulation yeah. tactic yeah when i say these things are stupid it's because they are stupid but yeah. also like they are means to an end they are in- so in they the way it's manipulated is to be like that's just who it is as a person and that sucks that's dumb yeah like <laughs> i don't know enough about the history of slavery to s- i'm not even gonna get into that because it's it's just it's bad it, I, I mean i don't yeah, know hot, fresh that. hot fresh take here yeah. but slavery it's bad yeah it's bad. um in the tv show louis has shown time and time again that no matter how respectable he is no matter how much money he makes he will never be acceptable to white society because of his skin color right that's still true it's still true uh lestat offers him power that he'll be unlikely to find otherwise and tempts him with the idea that these issues will cease to exist when he becomes a vampire. It mirrors language used by abusers, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that nobody else will love you, but he can. It's also reminds me a lot of respectability politics with regard to both communities of color and the queer community, right? If we only play nice with, you know, quote unquote, normal society, then we too will be normal. Just don't shove it in my face. They don't give a shit. They will hate you regardless. Yeah. The structure needs to be overturned. You're still queer to them. Right. They don't give a shit. There's plenty of like famous stories of this. (laughs) Yeah. They do not give a shit. They don't care. Um, This is a quote from a lusty soul searching adaptation of Interview with the Vampire by Inku Khan. Who writes, in a swoon of infatuation and white saviorism, he turns Louis into a vampire, believing that this will empower his companion. But it takes the Frenchman a long while to realize what his lover understands intuitively. Not even immortality supersedes race. Not in this place. Not in America. I do think that to some degree, Lestat thinks he is doing Louis a favor. Like, to some degree. Abusers generally don't think of themselves as abusers, right? Like, they don't wake up the morning and say, how am I going to abuse my partner today? No, he gives them freedom. He freed him. Yep. Liberated him. And I do believe that Lestat was likely in love with Louis. We'll get to their relationship in a minute. What he does, in a sense, is white saviorism, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Unlike in the book, Lestat seems to be doing quite well without Louis' money. So his actions read as more altruistic than the book version. But more altruistic is not necessarily altruistic, right? And it's not like his actions through the rest of the TV show are very kind to Louis. But I don't know that Lestat is surprised that Louis still can't fit into society. In fact, he's so not. I think to a certain extent, he counts on it he because banked, it makes yeah. Louis dependent on yeah, him. Yeah, because like like in the sh- like he can't keep running his business often without having Lestat be his the one to legitimize yep. it. Yep. And I mean, ultimately, he still does lose it, right? But there, like, there's like scenes of like the white men who are in politics in, in the town saying, "Just use Lestat. Just like, yep. why aren't you using Lestat? Why aren't you? Why isn't? Why aren't you just you know?" 
as many people say about women, like the neck that turns the head, like, right. why are you not doing that? And uh, they suck. Yeah. So List- Louis, I think, does think to some degree that he's doing List out of favor, but that doesn't mean he's doing it out of the kindness of his heart, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's a cruel, manipulative person. And I love him. Not in a, like, wow, okay. he's so great way. I am captivated by Lestat. Yeah. Every time he is on screen, I, I am eyes focused watching. Decadent. Decadent. Uh, do you have anything else to say about race? I mean, we could talk about that forever. We could talk about it forever. It's very upsetting. It is. Um, let's talk about gender and sexuality let's instead. Let's do it. Let's talk about sex. <laughs> gender and sexuality are, of course, separate concepts. But I want to use this section to talk about the more broad idea of queerness, both as in non-normative gender and sexualities and as a deliberate oppositional defiance of heteronormativity. Uh, vampires exist outside the realm of normativity and are othered by definition, right? Uh, but even in the least queer version of the story, the film, there is still a non-traditional family structure and homoeroticism just baked in. Like, you, the story does not work without that. Uh, Rice has also been pretty outspoken about gay rights in, and her own feelings about gender and sexuality. For example, her family named her Howard because they thought it would be interesting to have a girl child named Howard. And she had to deal with that growing up. I do that. Um, which we can get into a bit later. But first, let's talk about queerness in vampire literature because Rice did not invent the concept. So we've talked about queer vampire history before, such as in our Carmilla episode. Um, but the idea is actually present throughout many works of early vampire fiction. There's a popular theory that Bram Stoker, writer of Dracula, was closeted in some sense. Hmm. Many people say he was gay, potentially in a relationship with Oscar Wilde. What? How decadent is that? Right? Uh, or this man that he worked for, Henry Irving, Not whose appearance likely inspired Dracula's. But in my opinion, it's possible he was bisexual. Um, yeah i think the they were closeted could probably often be that's why i use the word closeted specifically because yeah. a lot of articles were saying gay and i was like he can also be bisexual yeah. like we don't know his heart and mind right yeah um if you read dracula there's a lot of moments in it that feel sexual and express some kind of forbidden desire like a, it starts out yeah like, it starts out horny it yeah. starts out and it's like let me tell you what this like relationship's gonna be like are you it's talking about interview the, the book i'm talking about dracula oh oh sorry that's okay sorry. but yes that is true of interview too yeah um there is a salon article on this that i will link to in the show notes that talks about bram stoker as a gay man um the desire dracula feels for one of the story's protagonists jonathan harker is monstrous but maybe not just because he wants to suck his blood, right? Uh, there's a sexual connotation to it, too, and even a sexual connotation to the way that Harker responds to Dracula. It's easy enough to fly under the radar because the monstrousness of the desire for blood is enough, right, to cover up the monstrous desire for somebody of the same gender. Um, but there could be something else to it, too. Similarly, John Polidori's The Vampire, based on work by Lord Byron, produced during the gathering that led to Frankenstein. He wrote a little fragment and that became... Interesting. Yeah. Um, John Polidori's The Vampire... Uh, or Sorry, it was based on work by Lord Byron, who was famously, we will say, bisexual be- for the sake of today's language, but he didn't use that word to define himself. What did he use? Uh, he just slept around a lot with everybody oh, of various genders. A slut. Yeah, but Lord Byron was perpetually in his slut era. Yeah. Um, my, I'm in my Lord Byron era. Yeah. My understanding is that Byron was very sexual, but had a particular fondness for young men and had plenty of mm. sexual encounters with them. But due to criminalization, he was not able to be quote unquote out other than when he was in America, which did not yet have laws on the books criminalizing mm. sodomy. So he could go to America and have sex with anybody he wanted. He could not do that in England. 
Um, Polidori took the fragment of a story from Byron and rewrote it to be about two friends traveling together with one of them, Lord Ruthven, being a thinly veiled take on Byron himself. Some people believe that Polidori was gay and in love with Byron, or at least jealous of him, with some of that jealousy showing up in The Vampire and its characterization of Ruthven. So with these two examples, as well as the sapphic relationship at the heart of Carmilla, you have a long history of queerness running through vampire literature. In fact, in the video interview with the vampire Anne Rice and 150 Years of Gay Vampires by Matt Bohm, um, he cites these works as examples of vampirism as a metaphor for internal desire that cannot be resisted. It's not the vampire's fault that they have to drink blood, right? It ends up feeling like a very love the sinner, hate the sin sort yeah, of mentality. Definitely. That idea of love the sinner, hate the sin is something that comes from Christianity, yeah. right? Where we can love, for example, a queer person while we say it's bad that you want to have gay sex. That part's bad, but it's, I love yeah. you. You're a good person, just the actions you take are sin. Yeah, so if you don't ever have sex, if you're queer and you never have sex, then you can go to heaven. Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. Um, When we are talking about queer writers or writers who may be queer, however, I don't think that this idea is meant to be preachy or nasty. We're going to get a little, we're going to get into some thorny stuff here. Um, I think that this is often comes from people struggling with their own desire. What do you do with something you feel but that society tells you is wrong how do you grapple with that how do you speak about it honestly right so if i live in the 1800s and i'm not allowed to be uh, as i actually am bisexual if i live in the 1800s what do i do with my desire now as a bisexual person i can say well i'm just not going to be with a woman you know but that won't stop your urges that won't stop my urges so am i fundamentally evil not that reason not, not for that reason, for all the other shit. All yeah. the others. Um, now, I don't know that this is specifically what Sheridan Lafanu or Bram Stoker or John Polidori were doing, right? All those vampires are less sympathetic than modern counterparts. But even so, the fact that they are driven by a nature that they can't control, even if that nature is quote-unquote evil from the perspective of the writer, there's an element of sympathy to it, right? There is like an element of like, oh, you're driven by an urge that you, like it's baked into your nature. Mm-hmm. What do we do with that? Um Throw it away. Throw it away. Where we can tie this to Anne Rice is, as I mentioned before, she had an interesting upbringing with regard to being named Howard. Like, that caused some discomfort in her upbringing because that's just not... That's just weird. It's just not a typical name for for a girl, right? Howard Duck Rice. (laughs) And she, in fact, named herself Anne when asked her name by a nun at school. Rice also spent a lot of time around queer people in San Francisco and has always treated interpretations of her work as being about queer characters with basically an I'm glad people see themselves in it mentality. Personally, I don't know how you can read Interview with the Vampire without reading Louis and Lestat's Two Messy Gay Men, but whatever. The idea of her saying, trying to pass that off is like not the thing is, I don't think she had. I don't think she did. I don't think she tried to pass it off as anything other than what it was. But her response to the question was usually, I'm happy that people see themselves in it, which is not the same as denying it. I think that's right. Because if I, uh, I don't know if you watched any of the after the episode, they Mm -hmm. stopped playing because once you like start watching them in a row, they stopped playing and that's really annoying to me. But I watched some of them. Um, And I think there was a comment about how the show allowed that to happen mm-hmm. and her son is part of that show that right. show so i would imagine there was a like yeah this is how it's supposed to be and they have said the the show is more true to the feel the vibe it, absolutely yeah, the show is, is so true to the vibe yeah. it's not the same but it is 
And like when you it's look at updated version, when you look at Anne Rice's work, like I have only read the claiming of sleeping beauty other than this. I mentioned this later, but we have a spicy book club episode on that. If you're a Patreon supporter, I think it's the $5 one. Uh, queerness is there, right? Yeah. Like, I just think that Anne Rice's writing occupies this interesting space between binaries, right? It may, I don't know what her sexuality is. Like, she never, as far as I know, identified it in concrete terms. Uh, but she clearly has an interest in exploring different facets of identity in ways that are sometimes taboo. Um, we'll return back to that definition of queerness in a bit, but for now, I want to talk a little bit about the role that Claudia plays in the story and how she, as one of the only named women in the story, has her own distinct purpose from the others. Now, I just have to admit, this fucking outline was going on forever and I was working on it until 1130. There's so much more to say about Claudia than this, but she's perfect. This is what you get because I was so tired. Um, so this is from Such Blood, Such Power, The Lot Complex, and Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire, which is by Debbie Joyce Chung. Uh, broadly speaking, both the Gothic tradition and the Lot Complex emphasize desire and transgression, subversion in the unconscious, doubling and production. The horror in 18th century Gothic literature often pertains to incest, homosexuality, revolution, the pollution of a lineage, and the disruption of linear succession of property. In the 19th century, it shifts to include anxieties about sexual disease, class warfare, and the colonized other. And in the 20th, dysfunctional families, child abuse, and neglect issues of particular interest for both the lot complex and Rice's Chronicle of Seduction. So we know how homosexuality manifests in Interview with the Vampire, right? But a lot of people also read Claudia's character as adding a complicated potential dimension of incest to the story. (laughs) It's something. Yeah. That's not because she is explicitly a romantic partner for Lestat or Louis, right? Though sometimes I question that. Sometimes I question it. Uh, but rather because much of the language that discusses her mixes a sort of paternal perspective with language that a person might use as a lover. I don't think it's necessarily that Louis or Lestat are in love or in lust with Claudia, but rather that they have a sort of forbidden connection to her, Right. Uh, there's an overlap of their feelings about one another with their feelings about Claudia. She's quite clearly the sort of having a kid to save the relationship anchor for when they're, when Louis and Lestat's relationship is on the rocks. But she also becomes a wedge between them because she has her own mind and her own goals that conflict with theirs. Rice plays a lot with the taboo. And again, I talked about this in the Spicy Book Club episode we did when I read <laughs> The Claiming of Sleeping Beauty. Woof. So (laughs) I think the language that Louis uses toward Claudia is meant to be intentionally discomforting. I think we're meant to read him talking about her lips or whatever and be a little like, yeah, yeah, bro, what? That's the area where I was like, wait a second. Wait a second. But it's hard because she, like, she becomes an adult. Yeah. So it was, it was one of the most interesting parts to me because I'm like, if I, like, I don't think they're together, but like the way he's taught, he loves her and the way that he's expressing that love felt very sexual. Yeah. But they didn't have a sexual, I'm pretty sure that at no point did they have a sexual relationship. I, I did not read it that way at all. But the language he uses yes. to describe Claudia is similar to the language he uses to describe Armand and Lestat. And I do believe that they had a sexual relationship. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that is so purposeful and making me sit in this uncomfortable yeah. place of like, what do I believe about Louis versus what do I want to believe about it Louis? It was some of the most interesting parts of both. That yeah. Part. Especially when you take into account that she is an adult. Yeah. it's. It, I think it's really meant to make you feel icky 
and just kind of sit the ick. and be icky and be like, Ugh. no wonder you loved it. Yeah, I I liked I like to be made uncomfortable yeah. and and to be to be forced to question things. I find yeah. that really beneficial. This is an issue I think that a lot of people have of like that's that's right, that's gross, right? But like that's not the point of it. Yeah, the point of it isn't like ooh, isn't this sexy? Yeah, like full disclosure, I've been watching The Idol based on the backlash to it and there's a lot of that show that is doing a similar thing where i'm like oh this isn't supposed to be sexy 2023 it truly is for this household the year of context matters and we'll die on that hill yeah i'm in my contrarian era um so many eras i'm good thing you're into the eras tour yeah the the real eras tour is about me yeah uh, we're gonna get there and they're gonna be like missy yeah come here she comes <laughs> um yeah so so like again it's not i don't necessarily i don't think that louis was sexually attracted to claudia but if he's using the same language that he is using for lestat and armand maybe he is what do i do with that I don't know. I simply have to chew on it, you know? I think that part specifically was written for the reader. And I, yeah. Cause, cause it never, I don't, I truly don't believe that it ever crosses Louis's mind. Yeah. That, that's, it's, cause it sees her as a daughter. Like, but I think that is forcing. Especially because they don't have sex. Well, yeah. Especially like if you, it's kind and of. And he already fed on her, which is the equivalent of sex. Yes. Well, it forces the reader to be like, okay, here I'm reading about this monster, but here's this part that they're not in a sexual relationship but why am i thinking that am i the monster yeah oh it's, it was just really good it's good. it's good like i understand i understand this is something that is going to be difficult and triggering and um off-putting to readers and i, I totally respect that but i don't think this book is trying to like endorse it no it's not trying to say oh this is good actually it's trying to gross us out so that we can like kind of dwell in the misery and disgust that it it, it um pulls out of us and interrogate it i think right? it's a really good way for her to yes okay so this book is written with a lot of philosophy in mind and now she's forcing you yeah to have to really think about philosophy yeah um some of these things are, are easier to grapple with yeah. than others this one the mind of an adult woman in the body of a six-year-old child with adult men fixated on her body like <sighs> you just say that and i feel uncomfortable <sighs> It's rough, right? No, even knowing the context, I feel uncomfortable. Right? It's it was just, I think it was, I definitely think that there were some of like, you think they're the monsters, but here you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really tricky. It's really thorny. It was done very well. Um, so I think that language is meant to be intentionally discomforting. I think we can critique that, especially because we're also talking about characters that are, at the very least, queer coded. Mm-hmm. So looping incest in there could be problematic, yeah. right? I don't think though that that's what Rice is trying to do. I don't think she's with her support. Yeah, the queer community. I don't think that she's trying to say, "Oh, uh, queer desire is one step removed from incest." Uh, I think she is playing, and not just incest, but pedophilia. Like, I do not think that's what she's trying to do. No, I think I think she's challenging us to that. Yeah, reader of that. Yep, I think that she is playing with taboo and desire, and I think the confusing emotions that arise from not being able to really articulate what it is you want or need. Because whatever Lestat and Louis feel for one another, they are not quite saying it, right? They may say, I love you. They are in a relationship. They are being intimate with one another. But I don't know that when they say things like that, they love each other. They are being 100% honest about what love means to them, Mm -hmm. right? 
And who is, right? Love is just a word to describe an emotion or a feeling or a commitment that we're making to one another without it, it there is no intrinsic meaning right sorry to get nihilistic on you but there is no like love is just a word to describe a series of things it means something different to everybody yeah. right when i say i love my cat i mean i love my cat but the way i love my cat is different from the way i love my husband it's different from the way i love mary it's different from the way i love my parent my my mom you know like yeah. I personally, when it comes to like that, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I don't say that. I don't give that word out very easily to people. Like people like, love you, bye. I don't say that. Yeah. Because it makes me feel like, I don't know. It just makes, it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. It's just, I feel like there, there is a lot behind that word and love, like using the word love is also a commitment. Yeah. And so there are, there are people who I feel comfortable saying I love them. Yes. But it's not everybody. If I just meet somebody, if I've just met somebody, even if we hit it off, I can yeah. say I love you because I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. But, but that's plenty of people don't feel that way. Yeah. Which is like, whatever. It means something different to every person. Yeah. Right. I don't think that people who necessarily use the word more frequently than I do are being dishonest. I just yeah. think that they're using it differently, differently than I do. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that's true of Lestat and Louis too who might use the words that who might say they love each other who might say they love claudia but what do they mean by that right we don't know we can't see inside their mind we is, can't feel what they feel is there like toxic obsession love yeah i say i love lestat what do i mean by that yeah. right what do i it's not that i think he's great i find him so compelling i find him so interesting um i love to see what he's going to do next not because i am I, again, not because I find that aspirational, but because I'm so like excited. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's it. I mean, it's safe. Nobody is actually hurt by Lestat, right? He doesn't. He yeah. doesn't. He's not real. Um, don't come for me, Lestat. <laughs> but uh, when I say I love him, I again, I don't mean the same thing as loving my husband, right? Yeah. Um. So Claudia becomes a tool that Lestat and Louis use to control one another, which robs her as an individual of her agency. Um, there are some really great essays about Claudia that I just, I couldn't keep because there's so much to talk about, about a Claudia as this ext- victim, extreme victim of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Like maybe the most emblematic victim of patriarchy she has two fathers who use her as a tool to manipulate one another who deny her agency who control her body who deny her access to the things that she wants like she's like maybe the ultimate victim of patriarchy right um this is from such blood such power the lot complex in Anne rice's interview with the vampire by demi joyce chung much of the lot complex's bending and blurring of familial and sexual roles converges in interviews involved family dynamics through vampires, the lock complex transcends normal male-female gender categories. For vampires do not engage in genital sex and possess a relatively gender-free perspective. The dominant patriarch-slash-master vampire, Lestat, creates a passive daughter-slash-wife in 25-year-old Louis, and together they live. They complete the family by producing a lover-slash-active daughter in the blonde 5-year-old fe- Claudia. Though created before Claudia and an assistant at her creation, Louis is Claudia's dark-haired double, passive and silent, more feminine than masculine, like Lot's second daughter. Rice identified with Louis while writing from his point of view. In negotiating the screenplay for interviews, she suggested that they make Louis a woman. It works. It's all the same passivity, the same philosophical ideas, the same inability to fight Lestat's domination. It's fine for Louis to be a woman because he is a woman. He's really me. 
So Chung here references the dual roles that Claudia plays. I think to Lestat, she is a romantic threat to his relationship with Louis. It doesn't matter whether Louis is romantically attracted yeah. to, to Claudia. It doesn't matter if Lestat is rem- 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 ugh, romantically attracted to Claudia. She's still a romantic threat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to Louis, Claudia is a child who doesn't act like a child, right? That's yeah. from the perspective of patriarch. That's fucked up. Yeah. Um, but I like what Chung says here about Louis becoming more, being more feminine, especially because Rice says she identifies with Louis. Louis. Again, if we're thinking about this in terms of being problematic, there is a potential element of that, right? But I think before we condemn it on that basis, we should entertain the idea that it's more complex than one member of a gay relationship is more feminine than the other, right? Who is, you know, the, the question of who is the woman in a queer relationship is meaningless. Yeah. You know, there is no woman or there are multiple women or whatever, right? The question of, the question of who is the woman depends on a, cis and heteronormative yeah. world Who wears the pants? Yeah, it's nonsense. It has no meaning in a queer relationship because it's not fucking real. Um, so I, I want to I wanna say that we think that that is a potential reading of this, but I don't think it's the only reading. Mm-hmm. If Rice does identify with Louis and is interested in exploring the spaces between binaries, which I would say that she is from the context of the rest of the story, I don't think that there's actually anything wrong with it. It can be good to break down these boundaries, even if it is a little sticky to do so. You know what I mean? Um, this is another quote from the world's smallest text. Seriously. The Vampire Companion, the official guide to Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles by Catherine M. Ramsfield, who writes, actually, it's a quote from Anne Rice. So, you know, uh, Anne Rice says, I've always felt uncomfortable in the role of being a woman. I feel like my intellect is masculine or androgynous. I think all of us are masculine and feminine. Perhaps in my writing, I go to my secret side. Um, Ramsland continues, androgynous people, she believes, are better equipped to live more deeply, sorry, to love more deeply and meet more of the increasingly complex demands of life. Especially since she's like, I don't want to go by Howard. Yeah. I don't want to make, st- I mean, she was young when yeah. that happened, but. <laughs> young and stupid. <laughs> I mean, like she, she maybe didn't have fully formed ideas about this. Uh, I don't want to make statements about who Rice was or what she might have meant in terms of our terminology today, right? Like I can't say like, oh, she was actually a gender or whatever. Um, but the reason I bring this up is that I think it might be tempting to say like, actually, it's misogynist to say that Louis is like a woman. Because it really does seem as though Rice was working out some feelings of her own throughout the story, Right. Um, she's exploring the places between binaries, not just because she's doing some philosophical thing, but because it is genuinely interesting to her and something that she was thinking of with regard to her own life. Sometimes intentionally, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Estranging yourself from something you hold to be true can actually be really beneficial. There's a really lovely article. I, I was going to link to it and then I was like, oh, that's too much. There's a really lovely article by, uh, Claire Napier at Women Write About Comics where she talks about the experience of being both autistic and a woman and specifically a cis woman and how she over time came to know her gender as a cis woman better because she was uncomfortable with it. Hmm. She, the more she thought about it, the more she was like, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be cis? What is it like? What do these things mean to me? She came to feel better about Mm -hmm. her identity. And I can link to that in the show notes. It's a really, really lovely article. I highly recommend it. Um, and how she got there, you know, through working with mm-hmm. many trans people, reading the article, reading many, many works from trans people, from engaging with um, uh, Ghost in the Shell 
and through being a, um, an autistic person, hmm. like, and, and how that, you know, how these things like helped piece together her identity as a cis woman. Yeah. Which we take for granted, right? Mm-hmm. We take the identity, we take cisness as default and transness as other, as, as other. Um, when in fact there, again, there is no normal, right? Normality yeah. is a, co- is a construct. Um, so this is a quote from The Feminist and the Vampire Constructing Postmodern Bodies by Sylvia Kelso. Uh, with this change, the 90s novelist made unexpected use of Butler's strategies to produce some intriguing fulfillment of Gross's demands. Butler feels that, quote, the reproduction of heterosexual constructs in non-heterosexual frames brings into the relief the utterly constructed status of the so-called heterosexual original, unquote. But in these novels, two of the three protagonists are women. The female viewpoint thus becomes the norm, the human. And when, as in Coppola's Dracula, erotic attention, sorry, erotic attraction tangles a woman with a new style, male vampire, the unquestioned quote unquote default position of heterosexuality focuses desire on a male body, which is marked abnormal lacking. This faulty repetition then destabilized the heterosexual, the heterosexual regime by changing the question, what is straight to what here is human? Hmm. I honestly can't remember what three novels Kelso is referencing here, but I think this is very interesting in the context of Interview with the Vampire. Kelso brings in Judith Butler's writing here to say that having something considered heterosexual, such as a traditional family, right, Mm -hmm. um, twisted to include somebody outside of that traditional framework, brings to light the fact that things considered heterosexual are constructs, right? Yeah. The traditional family structure is, in fact, not normal or natural right it is not necessarily almost like scientifically (laughs) yeah it is not necessarily the best way to do anything it's just the way that we do it the non-traditional family structure of interview with the vampire where you have two adult men caring for a girl as their daughter except all of them are vampires and one of them is much older than she appears is a challenge to the traditional family structure almost to a comical degree right it so thoroughly subverts the expectations that the entire idea of a traditional family becomes funny like, would it be less disturbing if one of them was a woman, but everything else was the same? Of course not. They would still be vampires, right? Like, it would still be weird. Claudia would still be a, a, a an adult in a child's body. So is the queer relationship actually all that horrifying? Like, I mean, no. I, I mean, duh, we know that it isn't, right? But that's what this kind of intentional subversion can do. And as Kelso points out, it leads us to question all kinds of other things. This, this family would still be weird and fucked up, even if one of, even if Louis or Lestat was a woman, right? It would still be weird and but fucked up. They probably up. wouldn't get as many stairs in the, in the, when they walked down that's the street. That's true. That's true. But they would still be vampires with a child adult daughter. That only go out at night. And they only, like, they still, if you made it, if you made them not vampires, the relationship would still be considered monstrous by our, by our society's yeah. perspective. If you made them, if you made one of them a woman, it would still be considered monstrous by our perspective. So what is it that makes it monstrous? Right? They're, I mean, the like only humanity. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where like when you really think about it, you can see how constructed all of this is. Yeah. Um, this is a quote from the messy, thrilling queer allegory in Interview with the Vampire by Alex Abad Santos. Sorry if you can hear my cat yelling. Um Louis is born into a world that already considers him a monster and denies him the opportunity to live freely. Lestat offers him the chance to live like a god, if only in a different way, avoiding daylight, sucking on blood to live, killing stuff, etc. And should humans ever find out his true nature, they'll probably try to kill him. 
But if humans are going to hate you either way and probably kill you either way, I'd probably choose to be hated and powerful rather than hated and oppressed. Fair. Yeah. I think this is something the show gets at very well, especially yeah. in the last episode when Louis and Lestat dance together. And then Louis notes that somehow their dance is seen as the worst thing that happened that it's night. It's so good. It's so good. So good. Uh, even though that night they also do some pretty gnarly murders. Um, also decadent. Also decadent. Decadent murder. Oh, it was just... I ate it. Uh, yeah. Uh, and they ate too. Yeah. Uh, Everyone and, ate. And he's right. Right? Like, he's right. The worst thing, according to that community that happens that night, is in fact Louis and Lestat dancing together and not the horrible murders. <laughs> no matter how much Louis plays nice with the dominant structures, no matter how b- much both of them do, they will never accept him, right? Louis is black. He's queer. And Lestat provides him a way out of that, right? Supposedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a catharsis to the scene where they kill all those people. It's not right. It doesn't really change anything. But there is some catharsis to it because fuck those yeah, people. Yeah, those people sucked. Right? Like, fuck them. Also, uh, some of them were very eager to become vampire, Or, like, not vampires, but immortal. immortal. Yeah, they were, they were all too willing to, you know, throw down their humanity in favor of power forever because they're bad they are bad people um the tv show is very different from the book but i think is an excellent update because it folds the ideas of race and queerness into the story it's telling about monstrousness right these are things that are within our culture considered to be monstrousness now it doesn't matter whether we believe in it or not it only matters you know the the uh, messages of our dominant culture it lets us grapple with these ideas head on in a way that I think is so effective because it's not Louis's literal monstrousness, his vampirism that makes him an outcast, right? He was an outcast before that started. Lestat enjoys privilege because he's white. No matter how Louis works with the system, he will never be white. Society will never see him that way. His monstrousness existed before he became a vampire. Being a vampire simply gives him a different kind of power that he can use, and it's one that also forces him to grapple with how he works in these systems as well. Um, uh, so this is another quote from the... Actually, this is about... We're just going to talk about the video, The Politics of Loving the Bad Guy by Princess Weeks, which talks about Lestat, the, the episode, episode five, where Lestat beats Louis as this moment when people watching the show had to grapple with their ship being problematic. That must have been rough. Um, it's... <sighs> this is the thing. Like, for me, I mean, I guess I had the the experience of knowing that yeah. their relationship was abusive. But for me, it's it's interesting that we react with shock and horror to Lestat's actions when he has shown us all along who he is, right? He's, it's like been like thrown in our face. Like, yeah. talk about don't throw it in my face. But like, yeah, that's why I was, surpri- I was surprised when like, I'm not surprised, but also like, he, it's really clear he's a manipulator. Well, here's the thing. I think some of that horror comes from the fact that like Louis, we could have been deceived. I see. Like Lestat being so ourselves. charming, being so charismatic, and then turning around and beating Louis, we could have been like, now hold on a second. But I thought he was a good guy. I thought this was a good relationship. No, he was abusive all along. This is like, I think our anger at that kind of choice can reveal that we too were deceived by Lestat's behavior. He's a bad, he's a bad person. It's a bad, bad guy. Um, Lestat is beautiful and charming, and that lets us look past the horrors, especially because it's with the vampires that our sympathies lie in this story, right? Like, I felt more upset when Louise killed the cat because oh, I God, have I cat brainworms. Upset. Um, than I did from Lestat killing this guy, 
this guy who stole from homeless people. One of those things is a sapient being like myself, but my sympathies were with the cat. And honestly, I was team Lestat in that moment. Then I like I was more with Lestat in that moment than I was with Louis. Mm-hmm. That cat didn't do anything, right? The cat did not deserve this. Louis also mentions in the next episode that he finds it necessary to forgive Lestat if he expe- expects forgiveness for his own sins, mm-hmm. which like he's wrong about that, right? Uh, yeah. Like he's a very, wrong. A very, I feel like uh, typical manipulation tactic. Yeah, he's wrong. But I think it shows how deep Lestat's hooks are in him, right? Yeah. That he feels that he believes that to be true, even like. 90 almost 100 years maybe 100 years after this event happened he's Lestat is abusive Lestat is not the answer to Louis's problems and is in fact making them actively worse and exploiting those problems for his own gain and I think part of that that like angry fan reception to the episode where Lestat beats Louis comes from the fact that we were also deceived right we thought actually this was going to be a fun sexy time actually Lestat is a piece of shit and he is a piece of shit like, he sucks so bad. I'm very happy with the fact that I didn't feel that way. Not, like, happy, but, like, thank God I wasn't, like... Yeah. Oh, like, I, kn- I knew where it was going. Like, yeah. I knew. Well, I knew. I, I knew because it was so clear, to, like, the manipulation. Mm-hmm. And maybe... Well, no. I was going to say... I was going to say maybe it's different because uh, manipulation tactics by abusers is talked about more. But these... But this is a recent show. Yeah. So, so yeah. I don't know. I think it's... Uh, well, people want quote-unquote good queer representation right we want good representation so when there's abuse we go well now it's bad but i'm going to push back on that a little bit later yeah so this is a quote from uh the gay appeal well in the gay appeal of toxic love by james summerton he says it's like we queer people in relationships are so conditioned to seeing the person behind the monster that we overlook the elements that are genuinely monstrous because to us as historical societal outcasts who lacked connection to human society at large We value the human connection enough to tolerate or even condone monstrous behavior. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think we see that a lot within the queer community. We are so afraid to call out bad behavior, especially abusive behavior, because it makes the rest of us look bad. And this is why I find Carmen Marie Machado's In the Dreamhouse to be such an essential read. We have to understand queer people as human in the fullest sense of the word. That includes the fact that we can be terrible fucking people, right? We are just as capable of horrendous evil as any straight or cis person. I know nobody wants to hear that. I know nobody wants to think about that. But this is true for all like oppressed. Any, yeah, yeah. any, it, this, this works for any, you know, any marginalization. Like, unfortunately, we're all human, right? We all live in this world that wants us to have power over one another. So many of us are carrying around, you know, unaddressed trauma, We are not always questioning the ways that we treat other people. And we have to do that. Like, just because I am queer does not mean that I can't be abusive. It doesn't mean that I can't be racist, right? I don't get some kind of pass to not interrogate these feelings and actions simply because I experience oppression in one way or another. Now, I think there's a counterpoint to this where we're like, oh, it's bad representation to have abusive queer men. But I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us to think about that. Is it bad representation? Is the show bad queer representation because it shows an abusive man? Specifically, let's get a little more thorny here. An abusive bisexual man abusing a black queer man. Is it bad representation? Or is it potentially true representation, right? 
do we all need to be squeaky clean to be worthy of representation? Yeah. Now, like, I know we're talking about literal murderers here, right? But this is true for, like, like historically, like, mm-hmm. uh, Rosa Parks was not just a woman who got on a bus, mm-hmm. right? She was chosen because she was, like, didn't have anything against her because she needed to not be a bad person for mm-hmm. her to be taken seriously and actually make change. So it, it makes sense. Yeah. Now, like, but straight murderers are portrayed sympathetically all the time. I'm the Ted Bundy. I saw people having Ted Bundy after the show came out. Birthday parties, Ooh. dressing up as it, saying how he's actually hot. I think that's a little bit different because there is more of a pushback on like real serial guess, killer. Yeah. But like when we're talking about, I'm trying to think of a good example of uh, a fictional piece of media that's like about a male, a white male sympathetic killer. A lot of superhero oh, media, sure. honestly. Yeah. Um, any like anti-hero story, that kind of stuff, you, you know? Could, yeah, you could make, yeah. There is a lot. I just can't think of it. I know, I just can't think I of it. I keep thinking of Star Wars, but I don't think that's the right. Well, I mean, like Kylo Ren yeah. is largely portrayed to be a Darth Vader in the end. Yeah, to, 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 to certain people, yes. And like the entire prequel trilogy with how it develops anakin into darth vader My like there's husband there's there's sympathy there right yeah. he does he kills all those children you're correct yeah, 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 yeah. he kills all those children and we still make jokes about it and it's still like meant to be sympathetic right we're meant to we're meant to have sympathy for him so is that bad straight representation <laughs> such a good such a good counter like I think you can be like, that doesn't represent me. I'm not like that. We don't all represent that without saying that it can never be represented. And like, here's the thing. It's not like I'm saying every queer person on earth should be represented as a murderer and abuser. That would be fucked up. I said it in the beginning. That would be fucked up. (laughs) But like, I actually think queerness is pretty well represented in the show. Like queerness itself. Like queerness itself, pretty well represented in the show. Just because Lestat and Louis are also vampires doesn't mean that they are suddenly terrible queer representation. Yeah. I think that like this is an uncomfortable thing to say because, of course, we don't want queer people in the media while our rights are being threatened every fucking single day. We don't want straight people to watch Interview with the Vampire and be like, oh, my God, actually, queer people are murderers and abusers. So, like, we should take away their rights. Here's the thing. They already hate us. <laughs> They already hate us. They already want to take away our rights. They do not give a shit about Interview with the Vampire. (laughs) Interview with the Vampire is not going to change their minds, right? If they already hate us, they are going to try to take away our rights regardless. If they could watch Drag Race and still, like, be against it, then they're just, like, bad people. (laughs) I, like, it's, this is, this, like I said, this is the thorny issue, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not advocating that this is the best queer representation. I'm not, I'm not advocating this is the true queer representation. What I'm saying is that portraying horribly flawed queer people is not inherently bad representation. We're people too. We're capable of evil. That doesn't make it good representation. It just makes it representation. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, is that clearly articulated enough? Yeah, I think so. And I think if if somebody reads in the dream house, it will make even more sense. Yeah. I don't like that doesn't mean that the show is for you or that you as a queer person have to watch it or enjoy it in order to be a, you know, quote unquote, good queer person. I'm only saying this because there is this idea that to represent something bad is harmful to the queer community. What's harmful to the queer community is bigots 
Yeah. Right? It's legislators who hate us. That's what's harmful to the queer community. <laughs> and the, I guess, too, like, the more you say that you can't be a bad person, right, and be oppressed, the worse it's going to be when it does happen. Yeah. And that's when what you in don't the- normalize. It shouldn't normalize bad things, right? But if you, <laughs> but if you're like, oh, none of us do it, then the one person who does. Yep. That's exactly what, what is, hap- what, uh, Machado talks about in, in the mm-hmm. dream house is how hard it was to get help for intimate partner violence when her partner was of the same gender as her. How, scary it was to have to say this woman is abusing me and potentially make her community look bad like that's that's fucked up i think i can say with confidence i can i I would agree (laughs) that's fucked up so it puts people in danger from mm -hmm. a a lot of different angles yeah and i know i know we don't want to hear that i don't i know we don't want to think about abuse within our own communities but we do have to we have to make our communities safe right and that includes ousting abusers even if it makes the rest of us look bad even if they become an example of like oh well actually see queer people are terrible they don't care yeah they think we're terrible already they don't give a shit so yeah mm-hmm. so we should in fact oust abusers from our community even if they're charming even if it makes the rest of us look bad right like we don't we should not tolerate abuse um and now i'll get off my soapbox and say that i fucking loved interview with the vampire i thought it was great it was she's a great writer yeah like i i legitimately really really enjoyed this book skilled and i am gonna read the vampire listat and i'm very excited about it because i love that shithead yeah like i said he sucks he's awful he's a terrible terrible person rotten hell but i love him the show was really good. Yeah, I loved the show. I will be watching. When the next season comes yeah. out, I will be watching that. For sure. I can't wait to see the... I don't know why, but I loved the idea that they went and found another vampires and they're like zombies, essentially. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting. I'm so jazzed about I Armand. feel like I am Claudia in that like that need of like, I want to go find out more. And then yeah. she finds out that like it's not good. I yeah. just thought it was so interesting. Yeah, for sure. Do you have anything else to say about it? No, it was good. It's true. It's, it was long. It was very long. Lots of consumption of media. Yes. But it was good. And I think part of it is because there was so much to write about it and yeah. so much to talk about. Yeah. It was a really long outline. It was a beast. Um, so if you like that, check out our website, fakeygirlscast.com. has all of our other episodes. Uh, I'd recommend any of our vampire-themed episodes. Yeah, you've got your Carmilla's. You've got your Vampire Diaries. You've got your Twilight's. You've got your What We Do in the Shadows. <laughs> we got a lot. We have covered so much fucking vampire media. <laughs> Which makes me happy that this was kind of like, we almost like led up to this one, because I think this was the most complex. Yeah, this was, it was very, very complex. Um primers. Also, The Matrix. You can listen to that one, too. Yeah. Um, Thank you to Emily for working on our transcripts. Uh, If you like this and you want to talk to other listeners, as well as Mary and I, um, you can join our Discord. Just shoot me an email at fakegeekgirlscast. Nope. Contact at fakegeekgirlscast.com, and I will send you an invite, and then you can participate in conversations. Uh, Next, we are going to be doing a commissioned episode on Mrs. Davis, which I know nothing about. I haven't started it yet. It has something to do with a nun and an AI. Um, My husband's very excited. Yeah. And I watched a trailer and it's like, oh, this was made made for me. Yeah, I think this is really gonna, gonna... It's gonna get tickle me. you. Yeah. It's gonna <laughs> itch that. It scratched that it itch. Scratch that itch. Uh, and then we're gonna be doing Jaws. I think that's great. I'm excited. I'm really excited to do Jaws. I love Jaws. Yeah. Uh, heads up, I'm gonna be traveling next month. That's gonna throw our schedule off. That's just a fact. Yeah. August is gonna be a rocky month as far as recording goes because I'm gonna be in Japan. 
So well, that's exciting. Though. So that'll be fun for me. Sorry, it worked out well because then I can go to my family. I can visit them. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I don't know when things are going to come out in August, or more likely when they're going to come out in September. There's going to be a delay. It'll but be fine. You'll live. We'll catch up. Um. And that's it. All right. Bite you on the flip side. I've been waiting for that catch, one. Catch you on the fangs. Gotcha. Oh, no. That's way better. <laughs> no, I think bite you on the flip side is good. Yeah. <laughs>